Welcome to the Inkwell Podcast. Today we are speaking with Scott Brisbane. Scott is currently practicing craniosacral therapy out of the Australian Shiatsu College in Brunswick, Victoria. He has studied and taught traditional Chinese medicine and acupuncture, as well as naturopathy and flower essences. He also has a weekly Drew Yoga class that he teaches and he explores various meditation techniques as part of his personal practice. We are also joined by Jeremy Nemer. Jeremy has been practicing Japanese acupuncture for over 10 years. He is a conceptual artist who has studied a broad range of disciplines and practices. He is also a highly trained martial artist with a background in Taekwondo and is currently a second Dan black belt in a traditional form of Jiu Jitsu from Japan. Through his own self-treatment and experimentation, he has developed an exceptional knowledge of the human body. And to lead us into the show today, we have Melbourne band Miso, who have recently reunited, which has brought a lot of excitement and joy to their fans. Uh, the music you'll hear on today's podcast is some of their older work from their first release. And if you're interested in hearing what they're up to these days, you can find them at soundcloud.com slash tuneintomiso. You can also find them on Facebook. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Yeah, so uh, Jay was just talking about uh, regrowing his hair. Uh, <laughs> okay. So for listeners at home, and uh, I do feel embarrassed about this, but uh, it was an ego thing from the beginning. Uh, yeah, I was at my dad's place. I was about to go overseas to meditate in a monastery, and this ad came on the TV, uh, and the ad claimed that the um, medical science is the only way to reverse hereditary balding. And uh, me being the kind of person that I am, that sounded like uh, a challenge. And yeah, so I started uh, addressing my my balding from the the point of view of the meridians in the body. And yeah, I found a, uh, a whole bunch of fascial and muscular attachments around the border of my balding. Uh, yeah, so I just started a process of um, yeah trying to uh, release this fascia and retune, um, yeah, recalibrate the mu- musculature around my scalp. And uh, yeah, so so far it's been working quite well, and I've got sort of three layers of regrowth. But uh, yeah, the question was for uh, the reverse angle. Uh, all of these other the Western medical approaches to uh, a- anti baldness. Uh, what effect would they have in terms of Chinese medicine and the meridian systems? And uh, yeah, would they be supporting underlying processes or or um, detracting from them? I guess that's the basis of the question. Jeremy, that's the question to me. Is it? Well, it's uh, it's an open question. We're we just discussing uh, it. I, I'm not sure if it's your area of expertise. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure whether it's my area of expertise, but like uh, you, you kind of came in on the discussion and uh, I was um, reflecting and just about to answer Jeremy when he was talking about kidney deficiencies and baldness, etc. that um, while my uh, knowledge of uh, Chinese medicine is pretty strong, really, it's kind of like um, it's innate in me, like I've been practicing for such a long time and I still do acupuncture and I still kind of understand the basic principles of it I kind of um, yeah I don't I, I, I don't necessarily know Jeremy what you're postulating with regards to uh, what you're trying to do but I am impressed <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, like I wouldn't have, I wouldn't normally have thought about it. Like um, with with Chinese medicine, you know, like I I, I still I think I moved from it being a um, 
a, a kind of like a way of life and a, a deep love and, and a poetic language and a science. Uh, in the last uh, 15 years or so, I think I've moved to it, to it being just a really beautiful theory and I tend to pick and choose when I use Chinese medicine as a, uh, uh, as a metaphor for something that I'm explaining to a, chi- uh, a client or whatever. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I, like, I, I tend to think that um, we have ways of explaining things. And Chinese medicine is another way of explaining things, but I, I don't know whether I actually believe everything in Chinese medicine. You know, like, and and I don't know, but uh, whether you can cure baldness with um, Chinese medicine. And I guess I'm a little bit offended as being a baldy <laughs> that my kidneys are so damn deficient <laughs> already. So there are there do seem to be uh, ways that you can treat. Obviously, Jeremy's sort of figured out some ways of treating um, his own uh, baldness, but. What are the classical or the Chinese medicine approaches to it? Because I heard at the Shiatsu College, Jenny was telling a story of some guy who was having like crazy, intense, thick uh, needlework done because he was going bald at a, at a really young age. Like he was, I don't know, like mid-20s or something. Like Yeah, for the listener, just excuse me, Link, I just want to say that I wanted hair like you when I was younger. <laughs> People have me too. been envious before, I will admit. Um, but <laughs> aside from my luscious locks, um, yeah, like she was suggesting that this guy was getting this treatment done, um, and they said to him, "When we stop giving you this treatment, the ball, the balding's going to return." So it didn't seem like it was really them addressing like a fundamental uh, issue that would then, you know, cure and that kind of thing. It seemed more of a like a just like a halting of a process or a kind of a, a like a scaffolding thing holding something up um and and his his words were well yeah that's fine like i just don't want to be bald right now like i'm happy to go bald in five years or ten years or whatever but yeah for now i'll endure this really painful therapy um from their suggestion so yeah what are your thoughts on on this so I've I've seen it attempted a few times before. Like herbally, it's it's usually a, a combination of like kidney supporting herbs, and I think black sesame seed is supposedly That's uh, the key. Yeah. Uh, and yes, I know someone who's done scalp acupuncture, similar to like post-stroke uh, style treatment of of the scalp, whereby you you're threading a needle uh, almost uh, parallel to the the surface of the scalp, and then doing massive intense. Um, lifting and thrusting and rotating technique uh, and so I, I guess from my way of thinking that would release a whole bunch of um, muscles and fascia and get the chi moving through the head uh, better but it won't retune it won't re yeah it won't tune the musculature yeah. so you're just stopping it from pulling itself more out of place uh, and I know someone else who uses a dermal hammer and they just like smash the shit out of the skull and uh, again i think that would do things in terms of relaxation and blood flow and that kind of thing uh, it would create a bit of bleeding wouldn't it uh no no is like because the, the scalp is the scalp is pretty uh thick skin and it's pretty tight so i i never saw him bleed anyone is like you could see a little mark sometimes but yeah, yeah you okay. can draw blood uh, and I don't know how effective that was. I wasn't really interested in, in this uh, idea of treatment until I saw this Ellen TV. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm really curious about it, though. Cause, so in Western medicine, they, they, they tend to give um, uh, prostate drugs. 
and uh, so yeah, so you just take sort of half a dose that someone would take if they had a um, prostate enlargement, and that apparently uh, helps with the balding. I don't know if it's a testosterone thing or yeah, I'm not really sure. Perhaps we'll have to get a um, a doctor on to speak about it more. I think a doctor would be good, but um, I was thinking that uh, is do you know if there's any um, substance to the um, suggestion that perhaps I went bald early because I had excess testosterone? Mm, I think that's the theory. Uh, and but I, is it true? Do you know? I can I can make up stuff. I mean, th- that w- that would make sense to me because it, that would cause a whole bunch of um, blockages around the the kidneys and the adrenal glands, and uh, it would it would create a, a yeah an influx of of the um, testosterone release. Uh, all of these negative feedback mechanisms in your hormonal system are dependent on the hormone reaching the blood. So if it has to pass through all of this intensely tight musculature then the off signal will be delayed. So you'll get excessive amounts of the hormone in your system. Generally speaking, every time you use it, you're getting an excess amount. Uh, yeah, so I guess that would be my way of describing it from the Western point of view. Maybe that you had some structural change through the your kidney channel through the, the pelvic area. And uh, yeah, so then the, the effects of it go up the channel. That's, that's kind of how I would describe it. Um, but yeah, who knows? Uh, who does know? <laughs> well, to sidereal it a bit back to people who know, uh, Chinese medicine you mentioned before and how you kind of you like it as a theory and that kind of thing. Uh, do you? Uh, oh, you. Sorry, I, um, uh, sorry, that's really rude of me. No. Um, but I was just really curious before when you were saying that you're not sure that you believe in it. Uh, are there things that you can that come to mind which you're sure you're you're not convinced of or? Are there particular parts of it or theories which, yeah, are more in question or is it just a general sense of? Jeremy, uh, the, the, it, it, it more comes from a philosophy of um, I find that um, beliefs kind of, uh, if you have, the less beliefs you have, it kind of makes me a lot happier and more open. I find that beliefs kind of... Um, restrict you sometimes i love mm. chinese medicine don't get me wrong it's just that i kind of think that it's um it's been a part of me for so long and some other things have come in and they they're becoming a part of me and there's some new fresher things coming in and uh, you're always a bit more passionate passionate about the newer things and the older things kind of just sort of sit back a little bit and they become a, a yeah still a part of you and still a fundamental part of you but they not they don't necessarily dominate I find this at the college where I teach at, where the students are so into the theory of Chinese medicine. And um, I guess I'm not so into it like I was 25 years ago, yeah. It, it mm. creates an interesting um, way of thinking and way of uh, accepting information. I know that um, one of the anatomy teachers, I think it was Jenny uh, Savage, was was visibly frustrated or defensive about um, the students' attitudes towards her system of knowledge and her way of sort of understanding things or using using certain ph- pharmaceutical drugs or whatever it was, like even though she's an osteopath and very, very holistic and, and more natural-leaning than, um, you know, most Western medicine practitioners, um, there was still this interesting, you could, you could tell she's 
just come up against this kind of slightly dogmatic version of Chinese medicine or, or that way of thinking. Um, my uh, feelings recently have been about this distinction between traditional Chinese medicine and classical Chinese medicine, or um, and there seems to be different systems that sort of claim to be more of a classical-based approach. Have you uh, looked into that or, or heard much about no, that? No, Link, I haven't, but I've got a, a, um, a little bit to add with regards to um, Chinese medicine. And this was kind of like back in the days when I was uh, doing my fourth-year assignment. It was kind of like a 10,000-word essay, and we were taking it very seriously. There was no internet. So research was done in libraries trying to do searches for articles and stuff like that. And um, I got heaps and heaps and heaps and heaps of articles on um, the use of ice uh, as a treatment in, in Western medicine because in Chinese medicine they're just not into cold yeah. as, a, uh, as a form of medicine, really. You have cold herbs, but you but as far as a applying external cold in the form of ice, they just don't do it. And as far as I know, that that, that was the case and still is the case. To do with that, like blood flow and, and the natural healing. Yeah, they say the it stagnates and deepens the um, the injury because, you know, in Western medicine it's used used on injuries, fresh injuries like bruises and contusions and uh, things like that. And uh, the, the Australian Shiatsu College, uh, they have people coming in with injury management and generally speaking, even amongst um, Chinese medicine practitioners and alternative medicine practitioners, they still kind of espouse this whole, you know, rice thing, which is rest, elevation, ice and compression. Yeah. And uh, a lot of those things are, are not the way Chinese actually treat the same injury and, and they are so far away from actually putting ice on the injury yeah. that, um, yeah, I did my thesis on it. And uh, back in 1989 when I did the thesis, there was um, very little evidence in the written literature to say that ice was any good for anything at all. What And what would, did you come to any conclusions based on... Is that the conclusion you came to, that ice perhaps wasn't that useful? Because I've heard arguments to say that for pain management, but then there's also some other suggestion that, that the ice itself or the cold restricts like a spreading of damage. Um, does any, do you guys have any... Un I think that's rubbish as far as the spreading of damage is concerned. Um, look, I, I, look, I'll tell you what the thesis was about. I was stimulated into this because we had a really good pathology lecturer at the uh, Southern School of Natural Therapies. He was an interesting guy. He was a young guy and he really knew his stuff and he was just into pathology. And so when we actually spent about three weeks, three times two hours or three or four times two hours, it just seemed like we'd spent forever writing notes at a, at a rapid pace on the process of inflammation. We were inflamed with inflammation. <laughs> it, was, it was full on and, 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 and like it was kind of like a really interesting part of the course because the whole inflammatory process and what they knew about it, uh, you know, like in 1988 or whatever it was, was interesting. Everything that was occurring in the inflammation process was good. It was the body's response. It was the body's natural response. The body 
sends in these chemicals and things and cells to clean up the area. Then it sends in these other things to lay down uh, um, scar tissue or whatever it is. You know, like a lot of the process that happens with natural inflammation is handled by the body. So my hand shoots up after three to four weeks of this and says, well, you know, Mr. Uh, Pathology Lecturer Dude, tell me what the effect of ice would be on such a process. Now, he's a Western medicine guy, but he was so ingrained in his physiology and pathology that he wasn't going to give me... He, he, he gave me a straight academic response, and he says, well, this is what ice would do, and, and he just said straight up that it wouldn't be any good for the process. Okay. Uh, do you have any... Yeah, so uh, it definitely does something. And um, in terms of reducing the what the spread of damage, uh, I, I I agree with that in theory in a sorry in an acute phase uh, because uh, um, the damage is being caused by blood spreading outside of the blood system, um, so the, like that's what a bruise is. Uh, yeah, so if you can uh, put ice on the area, then you're creating massive stagnation, which will impede the, the spread of the bruise, and you'll get a smaller bruise. Uh, whether or not that's a good idea is a different question. Uh, I guess, so with rice, it's all, uh, what do they call it? Um, allopathy? It's, it's an, the reverse of things. So if you have high blood pressure, then you give something to lower the blood pressure, If you blah, blah. So yeah. it's this anti-way of dealing with the body. So when the body has inflammation, you want to do things which counter that inflammation because that counters the symptoms which you're experiencing with your injury. Uh, so it's kind of a different approach. They're not looking at optimized healing. They're looking at like symptom control or something like this. And it's emergency response kind of. Yeah, but it's not really emergency. It's a bruise. But, but everything in that system is an emergency. Yeah, it's based on emergency. So uh, I'd be curious as to the use of ice in conjunction with moxa or something to create little to create little pressure um, situations and. Yeah, so if you can create stagnation somewhere else in the channel, then you should be able to use that stagnation effectively. Uh, and I don't think that theory exists in Chinese medicine because it's, it's, it's classical golden age was before the technology whereby ice was readily available. Yeah, so they just wouldn't have, ex- they wouldn't have explored it. Uh, there was no way of introducing cold in a systematic fashion, whereas heat is really easy to introduce. So perhaps if... Yeah, if there was some weird alien ice technology back in the day, we'd you'd have <laughs> ice therapists, you know? Uh, I was hearing a similar thing about, yeah, cancer, that cancer wasn't seemingly prevalent at all um, during the time of the classics. Um, and that's why, yeah, there isn't really much to it. It's all the, all the cancer treatment therapies in relation to Chinese medicine have been in the last hundred years. Is that? Yeah, I don't know. That, that one's a strange one because... What is cancer? Uh, and maybe back in the day people were dying of cancer, but they didn't call it cancer. They called it, you know, like m- massive stagnation. Massive stagnation. <laughs> so, yeah, look, I, I'm not really sure either, actually, but um, I, I think that people were probably dying of cancer back then. And um, But it, it's one of the things that Chinese medicine seems to me is that it, it, it was one of those things when you actually sort of study it for the first time, you realise that it's a very, really, it's a, a kind of a, a simple medicine in lots of ways and that it was, that it evolved in a, in a simpler place 
where people, you know, like they, they would get sick in simple ways and they would be healthy up until the time they actually got sick. And so, sort of moving Chinese medicine into the West, one of the um, things that was really obvious to me um, early on in practice was that um, the uh, illnesses that people had weren't simple, you know, like you, you, you had to actually... Um, kind of diagnose and you'd have a diagnosis which involved several organs going on and and you were trying to make your way through all of those organs and and western people to me that's how they actually appear they they appear with these complex layers of what's actually going on so it's really unusual for somebody to be quite healthy except for their simple basic spleen yang deficiency you know and they come along with a spleen yang deficiency i think people came along in china two thousand years ago with a pure and simple spleen yang deficiency that could be helped and treated with chinese herbs and acupuncture and moxibustion but um yeah, it, once you transferred um, that medicine to the West 2,000 years later, you got a whole different sort of set of circumstances and, and uh, uh, you know, like a, a, a whole lot of subtle layers that the practitioner is confronted with with regards to treatment. And, like, different seasons, like, different environment. Like, um, I, like I often think about sort of... Different ver- hemispheres. Yeah, exactly. And, like, in regards to astrology, like, I know you're... Um, quite into your astrology and um, I've had found it funny uh, that living in Australia we're in a really funny sort of place because all our counterparts are in the northern hemisphere like the Americans and the English like all the people we get our direct cultural sort of things from are in a completely different um, set of seasons and so a lot of that information um, yeah it's it's I guess it'd be important to kind of uh, try to find a localized version of it. Um, and I wonder if there's, like, there seems to be similar things in place with Chinese medicine that uh, certain disease patterns and certain various things, uh, yeah, you've got to treat it completely differently in our culture, or I don't know, is that, maybe not completely, but somewhat differently? I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm interested in what Jeremy has to say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, if you think about the kind of patients that you would have had in uh, classical China, um, most people would be spending da- days in wet rice fields. Uh, so their problems with damp and with cold were much, uh, yeah, much more prevalent. Uh, these days you, you don't really see massive cold damage except in homeless people and like skiers and stuff. Uh, yeah, so I, I think a lot of it is purely cultural and circumstantial stuff. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting, Jeremy. You should spend a year or two at the Australian Shiatsu College because after the students have been there for one year, they all believe that they're spleen deficient yeah. and damp. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. But they probably are. Yeah, they, they generally are. And um, Whereas I believe that they're all liver cheese stained. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this is... Well, that's maybe the primary. Maybe it's liver invading spleen. <laughs> well, and this is uh, the thing that I find interesting because... Um, Right at the start of the Shiatsu College, they taught us um, about traditional Chinese medicine and the fact that it was a system that was developed um, during the time where China was modernizing to fall in line with the um, 
like the Western medicine was was coming over there, and they, um, I think it was during the time of Mao. Is anyone can anyone confirm or deny? Mm, I think it is. Yeah, and so um, the story as I remember it is that they combined what was sort of like herbal theory, acupuncture theory, you know, moxa, these various different forms of therapy, um, the kind of. Excluded or, or or should have shadowed the parts that were a bit too esoteric or a bit too um, difficult to translate in terms of a Western uh, kind of way of approaching the body, and went more so with herbal theory because uh, it was again easily to translate like things that you take, things that you ingest into your body. That that's a framework that sort of the Western medical. Uh, system could understand better. Oh, you're talking about the Cultural Revolution. Yeah. Yeah, in the sort of um, the 40s and 50s. I, I, I know that I'm uh, interrupting here and and, uh, <laughs> and sounding like I know what you're talk, talking about, but my understanding of uh, what happened then is what, what and and correct me if you, you know some, something different, is that um, the Chinese um, were really interested in whether their medicine was worthwhile compared to western medicine which they were being introduced to and so they did a a whole um lot of research into um chinese medicine itself and I, i i do understand only because people have told me that um some of the finer aspects or perhaps the more subtle aspects or perhaps the more esoteric aspects of Chinese medicine got lost at that stage and they went with, uh, for want of a better word, the grosser aspects of yeah. Chinese medicine. But what they actually did do is that they proved that Chinese medicine was efficacious, that Chinese medicine was worthwhile, and they actually, you know, like they set up their medical system so as um, if Chinese people want to um, see a practitioner that uh, 50% of the um, uh, medical practitioners in China and 50% of the hospitals in China, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, were traditional and that 50% were modern Western hospitals. And I think that still stands today, that, you know, like you can actually still choose uh, what sort of practitioner you see in China. But, um, yeah, that's my rough knowledge of that piece of history yeah the only other parts and i'll get me jay if you can sort of pad this out a little bit with what you know um is that at the time uh if you wanted to continue practicing chinese medicine uh that you needed to gain a degree in western medicine um and the that's rough yeah well the reason why i got told this anecdote was to do with the like toyahari and the the blind schools of acupuncture and and massage because um there's been a tradition in in the eastern cultures of encouraging blind people to become massage therapists and acupuncturists Um, but i think the acupuncturist part of it came out of this idea that um the only people who could still practice their traditional medicines without a Western medical degree were blind people because it was discriminatory to expect them to, you know, um, to learn this new system. And they, some of those people became some of the best acupuncturists, um, you know, around because of their sensitivity of touch and, and various things like that. Um, but yeah, do you, do you have anything to mm. add with this? Well, yeah, so that's, that's what I heard. And, but I really love this thing, the idea that, um, yeah, blind people have a special skill in you know in touch and in, in music so uh, you may as well as a culture encourage people who have a, a deficiency in something to to pursue the excess that comes from that deficiency yeah 
Yeah, so it's just it just seems like it makes sense. Why 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 don't we do that? Why doesn't everyone do that? Yeah, when I heard, it, I was like, <laughs> I want to start a blind massage school. Like, <laughs> I can close my eyes and 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 teach. And in Japan, especially, there are a whole bunch of uh, acupuncture associations which are primarily blind practitioners. Like Toyohari is fundamentally a blind style of acupuncture. Um, right now, the head of the school is sighted, but there've been a whole bunch of blind. Uh, heads of the school and it's very much you, like you don't need to look at your patients. It's lucky that you don't have to become blind to join it. <laughs> <laughs> you, you just have to put on a blindfold every time you go into the school. Yeah, the but, but who could tell if you were? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yes. The fine balance <laughs> between humour <laughs> and other things. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, yeah. So you're talking about uh, TCM. Uh, if you want to join our fold, you have to become blindfolded. <laughs> I'm so sorry for that. No, that's and that right. will definitely be cut out of the. <laughs> no, <laughs> well, well no. luckily, you, you said it uh, parallel to the microphone, so we probably won't have a signal for and it. Look, I think puns are the worst, the better. Like, I think. They're like they're kind of like the, thanks. Yeah, they're like they're like a certain kind of strengthening of one's uh, patience towards humor and things like that. So I, I love I love punsters that are like the most awful punsters ever. Cause hey, hey you know you know Link. Excuse me. Uh, um, you know that sort of um, that conversational technique that you have where you you pretend that you're listening to people but you actually got this thing that you're really dying to say yeah well i've been a little bit like that although i have been listening quite actively <laughs> because about 10 minutes ago you yeah. know like may have even 10 been minutes. yeah <laughs> it yeah. just shows you how long i can hold on doesn't it <laughs> Yeah, so oh, but please, 10 minutes ago, what was... What? Um, well, whenever it was, you know, like uh, uh, I was dying to actually... Um, I was dying to actually tell you what I thought about something, you know, like, and um, and that is, uh, you know, like, uh, I I think we were talking about, and I found myself saying that, you know, like, uh, and I didn't mean, mean it in a... Uh, uh, um, uh, an ego way that you know like Chinese medicine has kind of gone into the background and I'm more passionate about other things now which is actually yeah. true but um, what I was um, what I'm more inclined with these days is that you know like I feel like my my therapy and my therapizing has kind of been dumbed down to such an extent that these days you know like there's almost no theory going on when I'm practicing with my clients at all, you know, like I, I've kind of got this whole idea that um, the best healing and tell me, tell me if I'm deluded because that wouldn't surprise me. The best healing is um, what comes from the person and that it comes out of the person and that when a person actually connects with their core, with their essence, with their true self, that that movement towards that brings about healing. And for some reason, I take on the task of helping them to do that, you know, like, and, and uh, hopefully, you know, like, um, minute movements towards the self occur when people see me, you know, like, but it's, it's very much a non-academic, a non-theoretical process. It's just very much a, um, I don't know wh what sort of process. I kind of know the tools that I've learned to do that. Well, yeah. you're the, um, only therapist that I can remember, uh, crying, 
during the treatment and like it coming out of uh yeah coming out of that space not necessarily like i went to the treatment thing oh my god i'm really really sad and depressed and i need somewhere to go cry like i went because my back was injured um and then yeah like dude was i crying uh, I think maybe uh, in in some sort of empathetic way there might have been a, a tear, but um, I remember it was something to do with my dad. I was crying about some sort of relationship thing with my father, oh, and that's right. um, but it was like yeah, halfway through, and it just it just really came out, and um, I felt completely comfortable and safe to be to be crying in your space, which is interesting because I don't always feel comfortable. In fact, I yeah, I don't usually feel comfortable crying um, so much, but yeah, something interesting about. The space that you create. Oh well, it's making me tingle right now. I I I must admit that was a while ago, Link, and I only have a it's a sort of like a, a tenuous point oh one percent memory of that. Um, but um, yeah, you know, tears are really nice, aren't they? It's such a nice thing, and they're such a hard thing to produce sometimes, you know. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. So uh, from your description, I'd like to do a little bit of detective work on your description. Uh. Because from the sounds of it, I don't think it's a process that lacks that that is non-theoretical. It sounds to me like like music. Uh, when when you're learning an instrument, you learn scales and you learn all of these things, and you might look at music theory and this and that. But at, at the end of the day, it's music. It's, it has a sound. Uh, and once you play an instrument for a while, you don't think about the theory anymore. You don't even necessarily think about notes. You're just thinking about sound. And uh, you're improvising through all of this technical knowledge and all of this experience that you have. Uh, so it's, it's, I don't think it's, it's non-theoretical. I think the theory has just become the, yeah. Yeah, the I agree. And that, that's, that's true, you know, like, and uh, it's kind of a, yeah, it, like, I agree with that. It's, um, it's like the, uh, the question that students sometimes ask about, you know, like, um, is it, uh, you know, can we just use our intuition to do this treatment? And please, a- <laughs> please, can I? <laughs> yeah, of well, course you can, but you have to train your intuition for many, many years. <sighs> <laughs> yeah, I tend I tend to agree agree with that. You know, like it's like you, the intuition becomes kind of sharper once the actual knowledge actually is bedded down. You know, like and once the once the the knowledge is kind of like really, really, you're really comfortable with it, then you can forget it because it just pops into place at the right times and you we then call it intuition as though it's some magical thing you get some very like we're all intuitive beasts and people just want to actually use this raw intuition come into a, a practitioner status or whatever and say well you know i don't need to learn any of this stuff because i'm so damned intuitive that i just know what i'm doing hey look there's some people that are like that they can just touch and um, for some reason, they are um, they touch beautifully, and they touch in a healing way. And um, perhaps you know, two years at the Shiatsu College or four years at an acupuncture college would mess them up. And I believe that happens sometimes. Yeah, I I, I could rave on. No, but um, please- <laughs> I can feel it. <laughs> well, yeah, um, please do. But I think it's like you're saying this. Um, if they're going to a school might mess them up, maybe, but probably only if they were approaching it in a in a um, in the wrong way, I guess. Like, um, because I, when I first started shiatsu, my touch, I was very, 
I have, I've always had a nice touch, like I've always given good hugs. But when I started touching people, I was really afraid about hurting them and various things like that. And I worked a lot on just learning my touch at the beginning. But um, yeah, that doesn't mean that, I don't know, if the, the more theory I learned, I guess if I get up in my head, I, I might start losing my touch a little bit. But like you say, the theory is just going to help pat it out. The theory is just going to make an intuitive person understand what it is that they're doing. When they when they're intuitively going to certain places, they'll be able to reflect. Like Scott Billings, I th- said that once. He said, "Yeah, it's fine. You can treat intuitively, but to repeat your treatment or to understand what the effect you've had is, you need to understand the theory and the di- diagnostic system and and things like that." So I don't know. I I think intuitive. I don't think you need that. I don't think you need that to repeat a treatment. You just need to remember it or write it down. Oh, that's right. People have memories. <laughs> and, and pens. You forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> I tend to. Yeah, like, uh, I think this is a really interesting thing in our culture uh, because we have so many things that are emotion-based, but there's there's no real process of emotional education, like a, 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 an, a syllabus of emotional education or something like this. And uh, it's a bit similar to intuition, I think, that uh, you have an emotional state uh, but it can it can be more or less accurate in terms of how it reflects your environment or or your experience or the thing that you're interacting with, and yeah, so that to me it suggests this that it I, I guess it behooves us to to learn how to develop our intuition and our emotions so that they are accurate and and yeah you're you're reflecting circumstances and environments a- accurately, uh, which creates good treatment and like good people I guess. Uh, that's how I think I'm rambling a little bit now. Yeah, that's okay. But this is touching on something I wanted to speak to you about. Because um, you teach. And uh, you teach in you know, an interesting college. Um, but you've taught at other places as well? Or is it mainly the Shiatsu College that you've done most of your teaching? Um, I've taught at secondary schools. I've taught at adult education uh, schools. I've taught at the Australian Shiatsu College. I've taught at um, acupuncture colleges. But uh, my main t- and uh, and I've run my own courses. I, I remember uh, back in the um, mid nineties, Link. I was uh, I ran a I ran a I ran a couple of courses teaching acupuncture to um, shiatsu therapists, and that was that was so much fun. This was be- pre registration. It's kind of kind of uh, <laughs> these days. If I if I was ones. if I was to do that, you know, like um, <clears throat> I'd have to call it dry needling. I couldn't call it um, acupuncture, but um, yeah, no. Some some of the um, some of the people around that have become acupuncturists, and some of the people that you know, the first time that they actually did acupuncture was with this course, and it was it was good fun. I've had the idea again recently, actually, and I'm really um, a part of me is really um, keen to follow this up. Actually, I don't know whether I want to broadcast it on air. Wouldn't that be like putting it out of there? Out there, how many people actually listen to this link? Well, three of us. Three of us have listened to it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, oh no, Jeremy hasn't listened to it yet, so two. <laughs> no, the reason reason why I want to ask you about this is because um, I think a lot about education and the way that uh, yeah the current I guess what do you call like the mainstream educational system works and this idea of like assessment and and examinations and and various things or or um, prescribing what you are going to teach or what someone is going to learn and then attempting to have that fit into the eight weeks or whatever it is that, that you have. Um, have you, do you find that model works or have you found that you've had to like change your teaching methods or 
yeah, what, what what do you think is an ideal teaching environment for, especially for these kinds of things like healing and 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 what you do? Thanks for the question, Link. Um, I'd like to like to put 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 that uh, like a, a massive question mark over that question because uh, that question's been going through my head a lot. You know, like I've been teaching at the Australian Shiatsu College. It's been uh, my longest term employer since the early nineteen nineties, and I've taught um, two or three subjects there over the time. And um, I, I, I'm kind of just. Uh, teaching uh, meridians, which is the equivalent of point location, really in um, the acupuncture sort of situation, currently, and it's more challenging now than it ever was in in my mind. In that, um, classically, the way meridians is taught in the Australian uh, in acupuncture colleges, I, I I have tended to teach like that for a while, you know, for for many years actually. But um, I'm tending to. Th- I've been thinking about meridians the subject i teach at the college lately yeah, so what's the what's the classical way of teaching is it sort of uh, rough, roughly speaking there's a few few classical ways of teaching it but um uh, there's there's a way of actually just uh, uh teaching meridians by just sort of teaching the limb in a in an anatomical sense yeah and then as you go up from the fingers towards the elbow, towards the shoulder, you teach every point as you go up. Yeah, I think that was kind of how we did it when I. No, that. no, I teach uh, when I when I taught when I taught you, Link. Uh, we did it just um, lung, large intestine, stomach, okay. spleen. Yeah, we just. Uh, no, actually, we actually did. No, I, I actually I have taught. I've taught it in a few different ways over the years, but. Um, I teach the six arm meridians, and then I teach the six leg meridians, um, and that's what I've been doing for the last three or four years. And I, I feel like that's what I probably did with you guys. Something like that, yeah. I think it was you m- it might have been based on the meridian, but I definitely remember it being based on the anatomical locations. Yeah, 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 yeah. My fundamental, my my, my thought processes uh, recently, when I've been thinking about exactly this, have changed. And um, you see, um, perhaps it's a response to what. It's, it, I don't know how you actually thought of asking that question, but it's a really good question and because what's been coming to my mind with regards to that particular subject, which is a really good subject, it's a, it's a foundation subject in Chinese medicine, is that I have this idea in my mind where I'm just sitting with the students, which is what I really like to do, and have a really, really broad kind of um, outline of what might happen in the class and to actually um, have a lot of freedom within that because I've found that um, I can have some fairly disengaged students in the class and when it comes to exam time they just learn it from the book and they pass the exam and I'm thinking well, what's the point in having me there? And what's the point of having me there for two hours a, a week for 14 weeks or whatever it is if in the end they can be totally disengaged for the 14 hours, study it in a, from a book and do fine in the exam, you know? Like yeah. My, my thought processes have gone, well, you know, like um, let's make use of the time that they actually have with me and me having with them, you know? 
So I, I, I was more inclined to actually sort of, when I was visioning this, I was visioning me sitting there and, and uh, transferring this kind of uh, love and passion that I actually have for the external anatomy of the body and Chinese medicine and the points and the anatomy and healing and just sort of sitting with that and seeing where the class actually went. So it was a, a much freer class. I haven't taught like this, Link, but I, I'm always thinking of different ways of teaching. Yeah, because I was um, speaking to <laughs> I was speaking to Con um, about it, and uh, he said he started doing men's health at the Shiatsu College. Yeah, sure. And um, a lot of the students are asking questions like, "Oh, you know, what point do I use for for this and and for you know erectile dysfunction or whatever it is?" And they're asking points, and he gets, he just says. Um, firstly, just understand what a man is. Like, all I need to teach you is what a man is. Like, and, and, and then once you understand that and you, you fully grasp what it means to be a man, um, then the treatment and, and the, the various principles will come out of, you know, your relationship with each client individually. But um, there's still this idea of um, not just a symptom-based approach, but again, this sort of direct cause-effect treatment approach that we... Um, have been taught throughout our lives through the education system um, that is really hard, I guess, to to break in a student and really hard to, to um, yeah, create an environment where the outcomes are outcomeless, I guess. Yeah, I really like Con, you know, like, and... Um, uh, but I think that... Um, I'd like him to tell me what a man is. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> maybe he can't tell you, maybe he can only show you. Perhaps. Or, or he can explore it with you or something like that. <laughs> Shall we have a little break? Well, that's it for part one of today's episode. We will have part two ready for you as soon as possible. Uh, just stay tuned to the website to find out when that one's released. If you're interested in being a guest on the show yourself, please get in contact. Or if you know a teacher or a practitioner who lives in the Melbourne area that you think would be a really interesting guest, uh, the kind of teacher you've always wanted to hang out with after class but perhaps never got the chance to, uh, send them our way and, and you can hang out with them via the magic of cyberspace. Scott's Drew Yoga class is on weekly at the Shiatsu College, so for more information on making an appointment with Scott, you can email me at shiatsulink at gmail.com. That's S-H-I-A-T-S-U-L-I-N-K at gmail.com. Or you can contact the Australian Shiatsu College on 03 9387 1161. If you have any interest in becoming a Shiatsu therapist or just want to find out what it's all about, head on down to 103 Evans Street, Brunswick and say hello to the staff there. Uh, Jenny and Marie, who run the college, are, are just wonderful, wonderful people. Uh, they'll be more than happy to tell you all about it and, and show you around the space. It's, it's uh, a really beautiful building. There's something about the, the energy of the place that's it's quite calming and yeah, nurturing and, and just lovely. You'll also find a range of other workshops and classes available there, as well as clinic spaces that can be rented if you're a practitioner. For more information, go to www.australianshiatsucollege.com.au. 
Thanks for listening to the podcast. Please visit www.inkalot.net for more episodes. Have a lovely day. Hope you join us again soon.